0: Right, here's a topic for you incontinence. Ooh, if the topic is incontinence, then this must be Daring to Tell. I'm Michelle Rado. Today's writer is Robin Fisher, who has a very intimate and beautiful story to share with us about some of the tougher days. She was losing her husband Bill to Louis body dementia. And I'm going to confess something right now. Just a few minutes ago, I went to look up the definition of incontinence. It's one of those words I've always thought I've known what it is, but do I really know? I wasn't sure if the word meant specifically either urine or feces. And so when I went to look it up, I found a website that gave me a very satisfactory definition. It is called continents.org, and it's based in Australia. So here it is. You probably know this, but I like how they describe this. Incontinence describes any accidental or involuntary loss of urine, in parentheses we, from the bladder, known as urinary incontinence, feces, in parentheses poo, or flatus, in parentheses wind, from the bowel, known as fecal incontinence. And here's another little nugget for you. Apparently, one in four Australians are incontinent, according to this website. I am not fact-checking this, just for the record. So, there it is. When you think you know the meaning of something, look it up, my mother used to always say when I was a kid. Well, back to Robin, writing about the days when her husband Bill was deep into Lewy body dementia... Robin and I recorded this conversation in late September of 2020, which was three years after her husband, Bill, had died. A heads up that Robin zoomed with me from her car. She was sitting outside a cemetery just to try and get herself to a quiet place, but her signal was not so good, so please hang in there with it. It gets a little rough at times especially, of course, as she's saying some of the more intense, important things, but I think you will get most of it. This also, as a reminder, was at the time when rampant wildfires were burning throughout the West, including specifically in the Pacific Northwest, which is where she was living at the time, and they had only begun just barely to subside. So with that, I introduce you to Robin Fisher.
1: Last week, my sister and I talked about all that has happened this past summer and the past two years. I know this is hard for you, she sighed. This is all just so hard. My body stiffened at that. This isn't hard, I quietly said. I have to believe that because I have to keep going. Caring for Bill being with Bill, that isn't hard. I think the hard part is yet to come.
2: I never did see Nothing like that I never did dream Nothing like that I imagined all the trees could see And the sun could move The moon would slide place to wait for eternity.
1: We had quite a love story. Um, he was my soulmate, there's no doubt if there are soulmates, you know, it, it, he was. Um, I became a widow 3 years ago this month actually. My husband died. And I had spent a year and a half almost two years before that caring for him he had Louis body dementia he was also a writer and an intellectual and an academic and a poet and a musician and all these things and part of what happened with his disease is he couldn't do those things anymore and yet he was such a gracious person i called him my professor of gratitude because throughout his disease it always seems to me as if he would not fight it. He wasn't fighting it. He always took stock in those things that he could still do and that he still had. So most of my, most of my memoir, which, oh, did I even say I have a memoir, and the memoir of, this, of our time together, and it's mostly about his time with this disease and, and working his way through it, When or how did you know you wanted to
0: write a memoir?
1: I'll be honest with you. I didn't really. I didn't. Um, What it started with this was sort of a, an email list of his friends of how he was doing. You know, we kept, he and I had kind of a large circle because we were music directors of the unity church in our town. We had a couple of albums and we were, Real involved in the folk music community in our town, and we produced concerts, and so we had this kind of a a wide group of friends and fans, and you know people who who wanted to know. And he was somewhat of a public being in that way, so people wanted to know how he was. So I started a newsletter that turned out to be kind of a private blog, and what happened is these little pieces turned into essays, kind of because he was a writing teacher and he would give me advice, <laughs> you know, and after a while I realized what would happen is I would write about what would happen that day, what was going on with him that day. And then I always read it to him and I would read what people's responses were. He remembered things differently. And I would read to him my perception of what was going on and he would read it and feel connected a little to reality a little more and he would be grateful for that i it took me a while to figure this out but he experienced the world very differently with his dementia he just did he woke up in a different place every day it was kind of an interesting thing when i when i started to realize that i was giving him some reality with these writings and his response and everybody else's response was so positive and so much like you're so good at this, you need to keep writing this. People would say, it's like we're, we're reading a, a novel from each post and people would give me that feedback. And I'd be like, oh, honestly, it helped me keep going, you know? And then after, after I kept going with it, I realized, well, this could be a book. When he was in the depths of dementia and could not write and could not read. And he would say, this is our project, you know? <laughs> and, and, and it kind of was, you know, so then it became our project. And after he died, um, I, after he died, the grief was intense, is the truth. The, the grief was way more intense than I had ever even imagined. It could, I, I didn't know. And nobody can know, I suppose, until you're in the middle of it. People can tell you all about their experience. And we've, if you're going to have any time on this planet sucking air, you're probably going to experience loss. Let's face it, it is like a constant. You know, it is a, not a constant, but a. It's a gift. And a given. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew it was going to happen. Clearly, I was taking care of him. You know, I changed my whole life. I quit my job to take care of him. But when it happened, I was unprepared with the amount of how. Physical it was just the physical pain in my body made no sense to me. I couldn't sleep or move or eat like it was It was crazy because I didn't feel like I had any I Didn't feel like there was any unresolved issues like like he was gone and we had all this time together And we like it was like the we played out our relationship, and then it was done you know I mean so much to be grateful for and yet the amount of pain was intense And so when I would pick up these journal pieces that I wrote and work with them a little bit and fill them out and turn them into chapters, turn them into a memoir, it took me out of that pain, actually. It moved my consciousness to an outside place where I could look from more of an objective point of view And the person on the page wasn't me anymore it was a narrator a character and it was healing and helpful so I just started working there was just this push in me I couldn't do anything else there was a push in me to get it done and that's when I hired a a writing coach I hired Nadine and she helped me get it done so I set aside six weeks of time and finished it. That's, you know,
0: remarkable. I mean, that's a really, I don't have words for mm-hmm. that story. And, and as you were telling me about it, I really, it, it sounds to me, it was your project with him. It was your project together. And it's mm-hmm. almost as if it's a a memoir of your love
1: story it, it is it really is i hope it honors him in some way well i think it does you know yeah. i don't know i know that a lot of people don't experience the depth of friendship and love that i had i know that there's people that don't but everybody does their relationships in their way you know they but still i know we had we had such a it's such a commitment to honesty. You know, we just had a commitment to honesty and sharing everything and being real with each other. And it's not to say we never argued, you know, let's face it. We married for 20 years. He helped me raise my three kids. We had times, you know, Well, I was going to say a commitment course. to honesty seems like
0: yeah. it's ripe for all kinds right. of arguments, but the willingness
1: to have them. The difference is, yeah, we, the commitment, I suppose, was to work through them, whatever it was. When things would come up, we would deal with them, and we would resolve them. That was good. And he had such a commitment to personal growth. You know, he did everything. <laughs> and in some ways, I felt like some of the things that he did helped me not have to do some of those things, you know? <laughs> which is kind of funny. But he was yeah. older than I was and, and was a part of that whole confrontational personal growth movement of the seventies and eighties, the SD kind of stuff. You know, he did a lot of that stuff. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, eh, he was fascinating and complex human being. He really was.
0: Well, I have one question before I ask you to read a chapter that, um, I would say that you picked out, but you didn't pick it out. I picked it out. You've shared some of your writing Mm -hmm. with us and this one really moved me. And that was why I asked you to read it. Mm -hmm. When you, when you were writing those um, blog entries and sharing the newsletters with your group of family and friends, Mm
1: -hmm. was there
0: anything in there that he felt or you felt nervous to talk about were you revealing pieces of yourself there that you felt like oh boy this is getting this is
1: getting tough to to divulge in all truthfulness yeah some of the tougher things I I did not share Mm -hmm. on the that blog this piece that you picked out was not one that I I posted but I did send this one to a select group of family and friends but I didn't post for the world to see at that point. It felt a little too, it was a little too hard to to reveal. To be honest, it was it was a tough one because it was a this was the dark a darker moment in in my uh, caregiving journey. I guess looking back, you know, you you see areas where you you would think ah, I could have been more patient there. And and maybe in the early stages when we really didn't know what was going on. And I felt like he should have done things to take care of himself a little bit better. He would say, I'm just so tired all the time. And that was like this vague, strange symptom that was the only one that could come. Oh, yeah, there's some pain in the back of my legs. I just feel really tired. And he dealt with constipation a lot. And it was like, okay, so figure it out drink more water, get more sleep, you know? I mean, right. and 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 that is actually one of the issues with this damn disease is that those are the symptoms. I'm exhausted. Yeah. I can't really think straight. I, my, I'm constipated. I feel fainty because a lot of it is the, what do you call it, the autonomic nervous system? It affects that as well, you know, for, and those things. And it just simply slows everything down, mm. you know? So... Those are just really ridiculous symptoms that you just go, well, figure it out. You know, cheese. Right.
0: <laughs> I mean, I can see and, having a little less patience with that. When you know yeah. someone's struggling, it's easier to have a little more empathy.
1: In truth, probably the thing that I did not share with people is the incontinence thing. That I wanted, you know, I wanted to protect his privacy around that. Let's face it, I mean, there's some things that you just, some things you don't always share, the bedroom things or whatever. And there were some incontinence that would go on. And at the time, we didn't really get that it was a dementia thing. Yeah. It was more like, whatever it is, Bill, that's creating this exhaustion in you, when we can figure that out, then this can probably figure it out. And it looks to me like when you get overwhelmed that that happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, go see the doctor,
0: get yeah. a pill. Yeah. yeah, I know. Well, that is the thing I think that especially wives
1: can say is like, come on, go deal with this thing. Right. Yeah. And this is an interesting thing that we're talking about because I wrote this memoir. I took some time. It took me a while to get there because of, there were some extraneous things going on in my life, like trying to figure out how I should earn an income, whether or not I should stay in my house. And what I ended up doing is selling my house and clearing my plate of a lot of responsibilities so that I could focus on this writing. I got in my car and I drove south to Southern California. Friends of ours, Bill and mine, they invited me to come and spend time and they gave me an office, they gave me a bed and they said, write your, write your memoir. And I was there until, like, I, I think it took me six weeks until I finished it. And they would read it for me. They were really good with feedback. Mm-hmm. And at some point they said to me, well, you really sound like a saint here. I want you to write about the things you don't want us to know. You didn't want people to know. Yeah. And there was an, a chapter. I'm not sure I shared it with you. It was one about incontinence. And it was like at the time, this was something I was embarrassed about and something he was embarrassed about. And I didn't share it with people then. And so there's a chapter in there about my frustration with that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not sure if I answered your question. You did.
0: You did, okay. and I'll I'll say so. Just again to kind of let listeners know. First of all, we're dealing with Robin zooming from her car. <laughs> <laughs> That's but right. um, I think that one of the things being of Zoom, one of the things that I zoomed in on about the story was the incontinence because Mm -hmm. I have had GI issues myself Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: it's a fear that I live with. And so I think that I zoomed right in on something that you point out is like icky and nobody wants to talk about that and nobody wants to hear about that. And I know that's not what this is about, but you, you share some incredibly intimate moments with us. And I think that for that reason, they're really powerful. So um, I think the other thing that's interesting, just to make note of, you were saying it was, you've just passed the three year. Yes. Yesterday, actually. And with the fires is a odd and eerie reminiscent thing. How, how is the air there today?
1: Right. The air is clear today. Uh, yesterday was one of the first days we had we could breathe and I went on a very long walk yesterday I had gone on some shorter walks and I just it felt icky you know smoke in my lungs and I did nine miles yesterday and I needed to I could feel my body just felt weird like it just my legs were stiff it yeah so it's clear right now it isn't clear it's a little cloudy but it's mm-hmm. lovely cloudy. <laughs> it's That's not good. smoky cloudy. It's yeah. just Pacific Northwest cloudy, right. you know?
0: The kind so. you're used to. That's Right.
1: All right. Well, with that, do you want to read the chapter for us? Okay. Chapter 35, Fire and Water. Wednesday, September 6th, 2017. I seal up the house as best I can because of the horrible air quality outside. There are more than 80 wildfires burning in California, Oregon, and here in Washington. And even though it's hot and uncomfortable inside, I want Bill to be able to breathe. It wasn't that long ago his wheeze indicated pneumonia. I shut the windows, and I have fans going 24-7. I watered the lawn last night, pretending it would somehow clear the air a little. We don't see flames or smoke from our house. But the full moon at one in the morning is an eerie, burnt orange ball through the haze. Ash floats and falls. It's on my car and on our back deck table. I hold my breath when I go outside to fetch the morning newspaper. Okay, that's an exaggeration. But I really do feel a little like I'm living in a sci-fi novel. The headline reads that the governor's declared a state of emergency due to all the fires. People are evacuating. Livelihoods and homes have been destroyed. We turn on the TV and watch the updates on Hurricane Harvey and approaching Irma. Fire here, water there, unprecedented. Never have there been two storms this powerful in a row, touched down in the U.S. in the same season, they say. Lots of people will be starting their lives over after this traumatic reset of fire and water. A small storm is brewing inside my home too, but I don't know it yet. I'm tired and sore after my trip to the chiropractor earlier today. She really worked me over and I need to lie down and relax my muscles. We finished dinner, dessert, clean up the dishes, and it's now time for bed. I push Bill in his wheelchair through the kitchen and toward our corner bedroom. He keeps dropping his foot to the floor, causing the forward motion to stop like Fred Flintstone's break. I can tell he's weary. Quit pushing me around, he says through clenched teeth. At this point, I'm trying to get him to stand, bear weight, and use the walker to hold himself up long enough so I can help him get his butt onto the bed. Once he is sitting on the bed, it's pretty easy for me to help him get undressed, get his legs up, and get him tucked in. But tonight, for whatever reason, he's not getting it, and I'm at a loss. I grab him under his arms and try helping him stand, show him what I mean, but he recoils like I've just assaulted him. I'm sure I'm making noises that sound like impatience to him. He doesn't understand what I'm asking him to do. Often, the more directions or set of steps in a direction, the more confusion. And in those cases, it sometimes helps just to step back and say, okay, then just get on the bed, honey. And sometimes muscle memory takes over and he can do it with help. Don't overthink it, right? Just do it. We're all trying a little too hard tonight. Is that what this is? Too many directions? I honestly can't tell. It doesn't seem like I'm doing anything different from what I normally do every night. So I try the global direction. Just get on the bed, honey. But that doesn't work. Nothing works. How the hell am I supposed to know what to do? He's pissed now. He just sits there. I'm starting to worry, and there's an urgency in my voice that probably sounds like anger, so he is resistant to anything I say or do. But that's not it. I'm bewildered. He's frustrated. I don't understand why I'm being treated this way, he says. I wish it wouldn't hurt my feelings when this disconnect happens, but it does. We're stuck in that cycle of perception and conflict, only this time, he's so far away. He's somewhere else. We are not communicating. I'm in that Steve Martin routine where the ugly American goes to France and thinks he can communicate with the cab driver by talking slowly, loudly, and in a bad French accent. I would like to go to the hotel. But this isn't funny. This isn't funny. He's further away than I've experienced before. There's a knot in my stomach. I can't touch him without him feeling like I'm pushing him around. I can't give directions without perceived ire. Don't slap the hand that tries to help you, I say in a huff. I'm hurting. I know it's the disease talking, and I tell him so. I say to him, I'm not the problem. Fine, sleep in the wheelchair. I'm going to bed. I brush my teeth and realize I forgot to help him brush his teeth. I finish readying myself for bed and crawl in. He still sits there. I can't let him sit there. I take a breath, get up, walk around, try again. Eventually, he figures it out, lifts himself out of the wheelchair just enough that I am able to get him up on the bed and tuck him in for the night. I don't even try to give him any of his night pills. I can't ask any more of him. What are you doing to us? He accuses me after we've both been in bed for a few minutes. I can't bear it. I start to sob. I'm just trying to help. That's all. I say quietly. God, it's hot in here. I'm losing you and I can't bear it. I talk to him as if he's my old Bill who can understand, but I don't know if he can. He somewhat softens, but I can tell he's still exasperated with me. You'll never lose me, he says. Except I know this is not true. Someday, I will lose him. Can I handle losing him before I actually lose him? That is a real possibility that I haven't fully grasped until this moment. I guess I just naively thought that one day I'd wake up and he wouldn't. That would be that. Here today. Gone tomorrow. I grab my phone and put on a meditation app. It helps. Wish I'd thought of this earlier. I view every moment as an opportunity for change and transformation. It says, oh, fuck, the Mack Truck School of Enlightenment, as Bill would say. I read to him, pushing through the lump in my throat. We've been reading The Book of Joy by the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Tonight, I read the chapter about anger and fear as obstacles to joy. Ah, geez. Anger, fear, fight or flight. We've experienced all of these tonight. The night goes on and no one sleeps. It's like that night in the hospital when he was up all night, confused about where he was, delirious, anxious. Back then, I crawled into bed with him and I was able to soothe him. Tonight, I can't soothe. I'm too damn tired. I doze and wake up with a jolt what seems like every 45 minutes. I give him melatonin and a gentle muscle relaxer, homeopathic drops. Every time I awaken, I see that he is lying there with his eyes open, hallucinating, talking about something he's concerned about in the moment, like getting a vehicle back to its owner, getting some important paperwork done, worrying about having the phone numbers he needs. Friday, September 8th, 2017, 1 a.m. Lately, I've been waking up at 1 in the morning, and usually I'm up for a while. Bill has been kicking his feet out from under the covers and off the bed. He's restless, but not too bad tonight. I keep blaming it on the heat, but honestly, I don't even know if that has anything to do with it. Do you want covers, I ask? I don't know. The last few days, this has been his answer to just about any question. His skin feels cool, so I get up and walk around to his side of the bed and cover him up with the sheet. Then I adjust the fan so it's not aiming directly at him. If I turn it off, I know it will get too hot in here. Who is this person, he asks. I didn't turn on the room light, just my small nightlight. I'm a shadow. It's me, Robin, your wife, I whisper. I love you. I hope you still can, he responds. I'll never stop, I say. He is thoughtful. This is all becoming increasingly difficult for me, he explains, negotiating my way from the start to the end of my day. I don't even know which questions to ask. Last week, my sister and I talked about all that has happened this past summer and the past two years. I know this is hard for you, she sighed. This is all just so hard. My body stiffened at that. This isn't hard, I quietly said. I have to believe that because I have to keep going. Caring for Bill, being with Bill, that isn't hard. I think the hard part is yet to come, I told her. 4 a.m. I feel the covers pull off of me. I wake to see him sliding off the bed, taking all the covers with him. He's rigid, but seems to be lucid. Can you help me? He asks. Oh, honey. I try to toss his legs back onto the bed, but when I lift his feet off the floor, he tumbles down. Well, that was a failed experiment, he says. He's now lying on his side on the floor, kind of twisted, and I can tell there's poop in his pants. He was trying to get out of bed and walk to the toilet like anyone else. I decide just to clean him up right there on the floor. Just another fun date with Bill, he jokes. I clean him up, put new pants on him, and then lie on the floor next to him. I wrap my arms around his back and chest and feel myself relax. We can just sleep here, I say. I have already put a pillow under his head. What a goofy wife, he says, to love such a man. (sighs) Hmm. That's...
0: That's really something, Robin.
1: That wasn't broadcast to everybody of our friends, as I said. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. That's, it's a tough one. I mean, I, yeah. I love that you decided to just sleep on the floor with him right there also. I mean, that's, yeah. You, we do what we can.
1: Yeah. You know, I remember it like it was yesterday. God.
0: It wasn't that long
1: ago. No, three years ago. Um, not long. Yeah. See, even through his dementia, he he never really lost his Ness. He never really lost who he was to me. Mm-hmm. I could always find him in there. Yeah. You know? And there was that moment where I was like, oh, man. Am I going to lose that too? You know? Yeah.
0: That's probably another question that must have always been there for you, like, where is the bottom going to be? What, what will he be able to continue knowing and recognizing and doing or not doing?
1: Once we got a diagnosis, and once we knew what we were dealing with, and that took a long time. Well, in my opinion, it was a long time.
0: Well, because nobody really, they barely know now what it is. I mean, when you had mentioned it to me, I had never heard of it before.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And once we knew what it was, I also knew that it wasn't going to be a, a long decline. Mm-hmm. So I knew it wasn't going to be 10 years, you know, like, like sometimes right. Alzheimer's can go on for a really long yeah. time. Yeah. I knew that about this. And I think I even knew that before I even really knew for sure. Hmm. Just, I just had some intuition. And part of that, knowing that the time was limited, it wasn't going to be, I mean, one of the ways they diagnose this disease is by giving you drugs, giving the patient drugs and the reaction with the drugs Mm -hmm. gives them information about what what the disease might be. Some of the normal protocols for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, which Mm -hmm. we haven't really talked about this disease, but the drugs they give to Alzheimer's patients that help with memory and the drugs they give with Parkinson's patients that help with motion, with movement Mm -hmm. can give opposite reactions in Lewy body dementia. There's something about that disease. It's really weird. The drugs, people are very, very sensitive to the drugs and normal protocols will just set a person way back. And I, once I really learned this, I really, this is my opinion, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, and based on what I saw. Some of the just regular old drugs, like they gave him a drug for restless leg syndrome mm-hmm. that just really set him back. I just mm. and you know, who's to say that he wouldn't have gone there anyway? Um you know Right, but, but it's because, because this so
0: how little they know about this specific disease.
1: Right, right. And a lot of times like a lot of times you don't know until the very end. Yeah, you know, yeah. what it is. So one of the
0: observations and especially with you reading it is kind of this dual mind place that he was in where sometimes he seemed to not know what was going on. Like he didn't know who you were at one point when you
1: mm-hmm. walked
0: into the room, mm-hmm. but also just a few lines later when, you know, he says, this is all becoming increasingly difficult for me. I don't know which questions to ask. I mean, that shows an awareness of what's happening. So it's this strange double mindset that's like, sometimes you don't know what's going on, but then you also have a self-awareness of yourself slipping
1: away. Was that? Oh, wow. Yeah. He talked a lot about what was going on in his brain. He would, he would start talking and I would turn on my recorder on my phone. Yeah. And just let him talk. And he talked, he was always a poet and always a writer and lived in the world of metaphor and meaning anyway. Mm -hmm. He would just start talking about his reality and how, one of the big ones that I really remember and that really impressed me or impressed upon me, I suppose, made an impression on me was when he would hallucinate and know he was hallucinating. We had this conversation where I would say, you know, I'm reading about this disease, Bill, and one of the main symptoms is hallucinations. You don't, you don't have those. And he says, yeah, I do. I just know what's real and what's not real. But what, what we figured out and what I came to really understand was just how hard that was for him. It was a lot of yeah. effort. Yeah. It took a lot of energy. And at one point, a little bit earlier on, he would say, it's actually a little bit fun. It's almost like I can create this reality how I want it to be. You know, he, and wow. he would play with it a That's little bit. That's very interesting. I know. And he's like, and sometimes it's really hard. Like I'm pushing through veils and I can't tell what's real and what's not real. And then at some point in that, he said to me, I can't do it anymore. It's too hard. He's like, it's just too hard. I'm too tired and I can't do it anymore. By the so, it you mean figure out what's figuring real figuring out so what, what's and
0: real, real and what wasn't real.
1: Right. Yeah. Wow. So earlier in my in my memoir, there's a chapter in there about how his hallucinations and he was on some drugs. This was one of those things. We were still trying to figure out what was going on with him. He mm-hmm. was on drugs for depression because somebody right. thought that could be the issue. He was on drugs for Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. And the combination of those two things, he started to have some really bad delusions. And the difference is simply that he really believed in what was happening. And he right. saw like insects all over the house. And I was still working. And I would, he would call me at work in desperate fear. Of wow. Sin. And I've said, we're taking you off these drugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was almost immediate. I, he got off the depression drug. And it was almost immediate that, that yeah. the delusions went away. Right. And it, was, and it was right around that time, too, where I said, you're not having hallucinations anymore. And he's like, no, I still am. I just know they're not real. Wow. So, yeah. And, and he was brilliant and articulate. And I think that that partly probably helped. And I think, I also think that our strong connection that we had made him trust me. And part yeah. of the reason I say that is because... Before all this happened, really shortly before all this happened, I was also kind of I was in charge of my mom's care, and she had dementia too. It was not the same kind of dementia, right? And she struggled with trusting people, Mm. and it made things harder for her because just because you know they you had this idea of what your reality was, and somebody would tell you it's something else, and it was like, wait a minute, you know, I see this, and you're telling me something else. I can't trust you, right? And so I could tell Bill, this is the reality. And his reality might be different, but because we were husband and wife and not mother and daughter. Right. You know.
0: And he had just witnessed you having these same kinds of interactions with your mother.
1: Yes. And he himself had taken care of his father who had Alzheimer's back in the 90s. Yeah. So he had had lots of experience with dementia. Yeah. And, And this was a funny thing too, because for a long time, I didn't use that word dementia. He would say, what's the name of my disease? I'd say, you have atypical Parkinson's. Or I would say you have Louie body disease. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, right. And because I wouldn't say the D word, and it was just kind of like one of those. It was one too of those much. Full disclosure, truth things that I just didn't. Maybe it was my own stuff. I didn't want to admit it, but yeah, mostly I just for him. I knew right. how much he dementia he had in his life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. And then there was this one situation where we were talking to a social worker who said, so we had a couple different medical social workers. All of the medical social workers that we encountered were awesome. They were really helpful. Mm -hmm. But there was just one who just asked, well, so is there dementia happening here? And Bill said yes. Oh, yeah. And And you were
0: like, you cannot say the word, but it doesn't mean (laughs) he doesn't know what's going on.
1: That's right. Yeah. And I was like, okay. I'm trying to protect him from something I don't really need to protect him from. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. right. Or you couldn't, you couldn't.
0: He, yeah. Right. Well, it's hard to know what, what we can handle admitting and what we can't handle admitting (laughs) and what we can handle talking about and not handle talking about. Um, But you are very brave to, to be able to talk about it,
1: you know? Yeah. 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 Really. I mean, this is, you know, bedroom stuff that is now everybody knows. You know, <laughs> kind yeah. of right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, have you
0: had other feedback about that part yet? Of this chapter, you mean? Yeah, in general, the bedroom stuff—the most difficult stuff to mm. tell. I
1: don't. Um, usually, it's the stuff people respond to the most. I mean, I have to say, you know, the the really, really—I've always believed. The the most personal is really the most universal, yeah. and I believe that to be true. In my own experience of hearing other people's vulnerability, and yeah. it's not an easy thing to do. And my my friends I told you about in Southern California, mm-hmm. even now, you know, I I say, hey, I wrote this essay. You want to read it? Would you be willing to give me some feedback? On occasion, not a lot, but and the last time I did that was just this little piece that I wrote for a newsletter. And she, she called me and says, no, this is, you can get You can get more vulnerable than this. And she was so right, you know? Yeah. And it's funny, but the most vulnerable stuff is, is sometimes the hardest to write about. And it's sometimes the easiest to hard, I don't know. Sometimes yeah. Sometimes it's hard.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know what you mean. It, it's sometimes it's, it's the easiest to come out of you, but not necessarily the easiest to go further
1: than that. To share it, right. I think. Right. And you can touch on it. Yeah. And she's like, you touched on it. You need to go deeper here. Yeah. I and I so love her for that, that she keeps me honest mm-hmm. in that way, right? You know? Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, oh, man. It's a really powerful piece, Robin. You just, I can see you both there. I see you both there, and I can see your love and his love, and I guess the other thing that I especially love is how, when you wrap your arms around his back and chest on the floor, <laughs> with or without perhaps poop in his pants, mm-hmm.
1: is the moment when you feel yourself relaxed because
0: mm-hmm.
1: right, <laughs> holding your husband, yeah, because I'm, you know, yeah. What else is there to do? Exactly.
2: <laughs>
1: oh, sweet man. Sweet man. He's, yeah.
2: I may never feel nothing like that, never as real, nothing like that. I imagine all the trees can see and the sun can move in the moon into the place where we'll spend eternity i imagine all the trees can't see and the sun can move and the moon will slide into that place where we'll spend eternity
0: find myself so grateful for these writers willing to share their stories. Robin's memoir is called You Remind Me of Who I Am. It's not published yet. And so maybe if you're an agent or an editor, or you know an agent or an editor, you might want to reach out to Robin. The best way to do that would be through her website, robinpassofisher.com. She is Robin with a Y, the middle name is P-A-S-S-O-W, and her last name is F-I-S-H-E-R, so Robin HassoFisher.com to find her blog and also a nascent podcast she has been working on there called A Long Walk. And walking is one part of her journey that we didn't talk about too much, but has been a big part of her continual healing process as she has gone on to rechart her life. Recharting her life with hope, is, in fact, the name of a podcast that she also appears on. Hope Cook is another writer from our group. She's a great interviewer and has her own podcast, and so I will put links in the show notes about that. Another podcast I want to bring your attention to, if you are interested in the topic of dementia, or perhaps specifically Alzheimer's, is a podcast called The Forgetting produced by a former colleague of mine, Sean Corcoran, who is the uh, managing editor at GBH News. And it features Greg O'Brien, another writer and journalist who has dedicated himself to documenting the mind of someone with Alzheimer's. It's a really remarkable listen, so you might want to check out The Forgetting as well. If you're interested in um, sending me any follow-up questions that I didn't have for Robin that you might have had, one thing I was thinking about that I didn't mention was, I wonder if she goes back and listens to those recordings she made of Bill when he was having some of his hallucinations. It's got to be something very uh, difficult, but perhaps comforting to go back and listen to those. I don't know. Anyways, if you have other questions or follow-ups, you can write to me. I'm Michelle at MichelleRado.com. Michelle with two L's and my last name is R-E-D-O.com. The next writer that we will hear from is Madeline Murphy-Rabb. She also lost her husband, but it was 15 years ago now. And she is reclaiming a new moniker.
1: I dropped widow. I'm single. Because it always elicits this body language like, oh, you know. And I don't want that. I don't want
0: that. Madeline has got quite The daring story to tell about a very personal text from a former boyfriend that was accidentally intercepted by her granddaughter. Look out for that one. As I mention other writers, this is a podcast really fueled by writers and about writers. So if you are a writer or know other writers or Perhaps are in a writing group or a writing class or have a writing teacher. Maybe you'd want to share this podcast with them. I am not big into social media, but I am trying to grow it organically. So maybe you would be kind enough to spread the word about daring to tell with a writer in your life or any of your writing circles. This week, I'd like to give credit to Blue Dot Sessions for three tracks in this episode, Water Cool Quiet, Pencil Marks, and Galaxy Shard. That's www.sessions.blue. And since I am mentioning music this week, our two theme songs, Nothing Like That and Make Me Brave, are written, performed, and produced by my husband, Phil Rado, and Flying Pig Music. Music. Daring to Tell is a production of Flying Pig Audio. Thank you for listening.